please turn to John chapter 15. We have made it our aim to be a disciple-making church. And at the very heart of disciple-making is um, the, the, the practical matter of growing up. Spiritual maturity, growing up spiritually, it, it comes in a variety of ways. But one of the most significant distinguishing marks, I believe, of a mature Christian, someone who has grown up in Christ, is the conviction that being a mature Christian does not guarantee comfort in life. One of the most significant distinguishing marks of a mature Christian is a conviction that being a mature Christ follower, it just does not guarantee comfort in life. Growing up in a vital, ongoing connectedness to Jesus does not guarantee that you will be insulated from heartache or that you'll always be blessed with robust physical health or financial prosperity or that you would be spared from being hated by the world. Rather, being joined to Jesus, vitally connected to Jesus, in this earthly life, it will cost you. Maybe a lot. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a German pastor who was hung by the Nazis uh, during World War II, he wrote quite famously, when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die. And Jesus did say that, right? If anyone would come after me, he must lay down his life, take up a cross, follow me, So so there is this cost for everyone who follows Jesus. There's a surrender. There's this laying down of our lives. And it is crucial for disciple makers to keep very near to the forefront of our thinking. This, This committing oneself unreservedly to Christ. This growing up into spiritual maturity, and this mission of calling others to do the same, it has implications. We dare not forget that. Being joined to Jesus, vitally connected to Jesus, it brings us into a a completely new situation. Samuel Rutherford Puritan pastor, Uh, I I love reading the Puritans, He, he says it like this, God has called you to Christ's side, and the wind is now in Christ's face in this land, and once you are with him, you cannot expect to be sitting on the sheltered and sunny side of the hill. So, Following Jesus will cost us something. And Jesus wants us 
to know that, to be clear about that. And so here in John chapter 15, just, just hours now before the cross, just days before returning to the Father in heaven, while he's still with them, Jesus is preparing his disciples for mission. And he knows exactly what making and multiplying disciples in this world entails. And he knows that there will inevitably be some suffering ahead for these brothers. He knows that there will be some persecution ahead. He knows that there is death ahead for some of them. He knows all that they will face. Nothing kept secret from him. And so he's telling them now, ahead of time, he's bracing them for the opposition that they're going to face. He wants them to hear about it now. And loved ones, listen, he wants us to hear about it now. The implication of telling them and telling us is that when those moments come, we won't be taken by surprise. Instead, we will remember what Jesus has said. These are words to remember so that if and when the world hates us and expresses its hatred toward us, that our faith will be strengthened. We will be assured that what's happening to us, it's not outside Jesus' knowledge purview. That it's not outside of his plan. Though Jesus spoke the words that we're about to hear a long, long time ago, nevertheless, these words were written for you and for me. So, the certainty of opposition to those who follow Christ. It's not somehow just limited. This isn't just an applicable text for some people at a certain historical cultural situation that existed way back when or wherever. For sure, the 11 faced a particular opposition as they engaged in making disciples in in the first century Roman Empire. But this is what we need to understand. The reason for the opposition, no matter when the time or where the place, it's the same. The reason is the same. So, pay careful attention now to Jesus' words. I'm going to read John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, and read through chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I've said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And may these words of our Lord Jesus abide in us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the recorded words of of our Savior. These are words of life. These are words of instruction. These are words intended to strengthen our faith. These are words that are intended to shape our lives. And apart from the work of your Holy Spirit now, bringing these words to bear upon us, upon our thinking, upon our affections, upon our worldview, upon our feelings, upon the way we would do life. God forbid that they would be in vain. You have promised that your word is not in vain. We entrust ourselves to that and we ask you, Lord, to communicate yourself to us. Come, Holy Spirit, and bring the words of Jesus to bear upon us. Shape us by these things for your glory and that we might be fruitful, Lord, fruitful in Christ for your glory. In his name we pray, amen. In in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus, he summarizes the missional claim that he has made on our lives. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And then, in our text now for today, Jesus is is equipping us for that mission. He's training us. 
to understand that the, that the situations and the, the level of opposition may vary from place to place, from time to time. But the fact of opposition, the fact that we will be opposed, and the reason for that opposition, those are the same no matter where or when Christians are living. And so for the sake of our spiritual maturity, our growing up, our aim is to be equipped by the words of Jesus. Our aim is to be transformed by the significance of the teaching of Jesus. And so my purpose here is to prepare us so that we are we're sharp and we're awake and we're ready because we've been thinking rightly about what Jesus has said. So, loved ones, there is a, a great danger, I believe, of us being lulled by the relative ease we have experienced as disciples of Christ. But Jesus loves us way too much to let us remain lulled. And so he says, listen, listen you whom I have chosen. Until you get to the celestial city, until you cross over into the heavenly realm, you are in dangerous country. You are in enemy territory. And until you get to the better country, you're going to experience some foul weather at times. You are going to experience some steep climbing. You are going to experience some measure of opposition in all shapes and sizes. So, Let's pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying. And the first thing he is saying is that your connection to Jesus places you in opposition to the world. Being joined to Jesus, connected to Jesus, is a costly thing. The living, vital, ongoing, fruit-bearing connection that we have with Jesus is going to place us where we will be inevitably opposed. Look again now at chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. As its own. Because, but because you're not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. So, so you see the emphasis that Jesus is placing on this connection between himself and his followers. It's because of me. It's because you're connected to me. The world hated me, and since you are associated with me, the world's going to hate you. Now, why would anybody hate Jesus? <laughs> why is the world opposed to Jesus. Hate's a pretty strong word, right? I mean, maybe they 
Maybe they hate Christians in Iran, or maybe they hate Christians in North Korea, or in some Islamic enclave in Indonesia. But, but do people actually hate Jesus and his followers in Sioux Falls, South Dakota? And if so, why? What makes Jesus offensive? In Jesus' day, the, the first thing people rejected about him was the fact that he told them that if they didn't accept him, they were actually, in fact, rejecting God. People didn't recognize uh, nor would they accept this notion of Jesus' unique connection to God. So people would not accept the truth of Jesus' unique connection to the Father. And they refused to acknowledge this unique identity between Jesus and God the Father. Because to do so would require them, and I think this is the heart of the matter, it would require them to accept Jesus' words as God's words. To submit to Jesus' words as they would submit to God's words. And of course, that would require them to submit to Jesus' words of judgment. It would require them to submit to Jesus' words about the uniqueness of this, this life that there is in Him. And so ultimately, when people rejected Jesus, though they maybe didn't realize it or even have categories for it, what they were actually doing was that they were rejecting God. And Jesus says so absolutely crystal clear in chapter 15, verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. They didn't want to believe that Jesus and the Father were one. Don Carson, commenting on this passage, writes, Whether people recognized it or not, Jesus' work was nothing less than God's work. In Jesus' speech, God's words were heard. In Jesus' works, God's activity was seen. Indeed, in Jesus, God himself was seen. Jesus is the one who narrates God in the plane of human existence. Thus, to hate Jesus is to hate God, just as to accept Jesus is to accept His Father. So tightly is Jesus bound up with His Father, both in His person and in His words and deeds, that whatever attitude is directed toward Him is no less directed toward God. Now, if you think of things that way, if you accept that truth, and it's a profound truth, Oh, that just adds a whole ton of freight to whatever Jesus has to say. Many, 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 many people will reject Jesus fundamentally because they do not like the implication that his words have complete, absolute authority over our lives. And so the first reason that the world hates Jesus is because 
They don't submit to Him as God. There's a second reason the world hated Jesus. Second reason the world still hates Jesus. The, the world doesn't like it when the posture of its heart is labeled rebellion. The world doesn't like this, the disposition of its heart being called sinful. That's, you're sinful. It's, a, it's offensive. And that's because, by nature, we love our autonomy. Our, our little granddaughter, a great display of it even this morning, um, she's now at this place where if you say, Isabel, come this way, she goes the opposite way. <laughs> and um, she, that's autonomy. That, that word literally means to be a law unto yourself. We, we like that. We, we don't like being told that that is actually rebellion against God. Earlier, Jesus had said, John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, He said, The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And now in John chapter 15, Jesus is saying, That's exactly what's happened. That's exactly what's happened. Look at verse 22. If I had not come... And spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now, they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they've seen and hated both me and my Father. So, Jesus is not saying, look, it's not like they hadn't sinned before. He's saying that, Having been shown the truth and now rejecting the truth, the fact of their rejection leaves them guilty in their sin. And what the people are saying is, we don't want to acknowledge the truth of your words. We don't, we don't accept the implication this has about us, about your truth, because because that would mean that we would have to admit that we are wrong. That we're against God. And we don't want to admit that. We'd rather believe that you, Jesus, you're the one that's wrong. So we're against you. So, think about your relationships. You know, people... People might like Jesus. People might like Jesus, people that you know, as long as he is inoffensive. As long as he's soft. As long as he's pliable. As long as he's going to cut us some slack. Oh, but when this Christ speaks and he lays claims to a person's complete allegiance. That, that separates those who love and those who hate. 
And so at the end of verse 23 and again at the end of verse 24, Jesus says, you know, whether they realize it or not, their opposition to me, it's, it's really opposition to God. And because of that opposition to Christ, Jesus now says, and, and pay very close attention, because you are with me, because you are joined to me, because you are connected to me, this opposition to me is going to, by association, transfer to you. Loved ones, just stop and think about this. If you are connected to Jesus, oh, well, well of course, it, it guarantees some mind-bogglingly wonderful things. We have been granted, in union with Christ, we've been granted great and precious promises. In Christ, we have been, He has caused us to be born again. Through Him, in union with Him, we have a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have an inheritance. An inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled. And it's reserved in heaven for us. An inheritance that will never fade away. That's being guarded at this very moment, at this very second by God's power. You know, one of our favorite promises, I think we say this a lot. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, in union with him, join to him, graciously give us all things. We have been blessed in Christ in union with Christ, with every spiritual blessing, our union with Jesus guarantees some mind-bogglingly wonderful things. But, our union with Christ also guarantees that we share in Christ's sufferings. And part of the way that gets worked out, in fact, a good part of the reason for why that happens is that now, because of this new life that we've been given in Christ, that, that, that life is flowing from the vine into the branches, and that life starts bearing fruit, and that fruit, that fruit born out of this vital connection with Jesus, oh my goodness, it, it starts to look remarkably like, guess who? Jesus. <laughs> and as the fruit of a Christ-like life starts being born in our lives, and our, our lives start reflecting the character of Christ, instead of participating in, joining in, being vitally connected into the world, you are now vitally connected. In Christ. Look at verse 19 again. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. For that reason, the world hates you. If we are living 
consistent, credible Christian lives. We're abiding in Jesus. Notice I didn't say perfect. If we're living consistent, credible Christian lives, our works, our words are going to resemble Christ's works and Christ's words. And therefore, our works and our words are going to be in regular opposition to the lifestyles and the speech of the world around us. Integrity in the workplace. I mean, even our attitude toward work. Uh, our understanding of work, all in and of itself. Our, our personal ethics. Our goals, our values, our convictions, our, our, our decisions based on those values. Our, our convictions about marriage and about sexuality. Our convictions about parenting. Are not being, are not being self-absorbed me monsters. You know, it, our humor, our willingness to speak words of kindness and forgiveness, our courage to register when something is like morally and ethically wrong, our unwillingness to spread speculations that would damage somebody's reputation. You know, all those things and, and many, many more as we display more and more and more the fruit of the life of Christ, living in vital connection to Christ, our lives will have to some degree the same effect His did. That is, our lives <laughs> It's going to arouse some opposition. From the world. And Jesus is saying to us, look, don't let that throw you. Don't let that destabilize or intimidate you. It comes with the territory. Remember, oh, remember, this is verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. On account of your connection to me. So loved ones, following Jesus, making, multiplying disciples of Jesus... It costs something. And the question, I believe that, that we, we have to ask ourselves, the question we have to ask ourselves is, um, is that cost of being joined to Jesus registered anywhere in my life? That's, that's the burden I've been wrestling with the last few days here. Is the cost of being connected to Jesus, being registered anywhere in my life? So, so let's just stop for a moment and think about our lives. There are a lot of possibilities here. Uh, one would be that uh, maybe... 
we're experiencing, we're, we're experiencing absolutely zero opposition at all for our connectedness to Jesus. And maybe it's because there's really absolutely nothing, nothing distinctive about our lives. We, I mean, we just, we fit right in. We're buddy buddies with the world. Hand in a glove. It's a possibility. Another possibility could be that maybe, maybe we're experiencing hardly any opposition, but it's because Mainly, we, we, you know, we live in a culture, we live in a community that's pretty safe, pretty tolerant, more sympathetic than not. Now, of course, that has its own dangers, right? And, and I don't misunderstand. We should be profoundly grateful. I, you know, I thank God every time I'm praying for our, these pastors that we have a particular relationship in South Asia. Um, I, I am so thankful to God that I do not have to watch my step every second of the day like they do. I, I am in no danger of being taken. I am in no danger of my family never seeing or hearing from me again like they are. Thank you, God. But it's also a reason to be ever so vigilant against all the other dangers of living in a culture like ours. Namely, mainly, just assimilating to the point that we're no different than anybody else. Here's another possibility. Maybe, maybe we're experiencing some opposition, but, but mainly it's, it's because we're just idiots. You know, we're... We're not very gracious. Maybe the reason that we're experiencing opposition, whatever it might be, is just because we're so obnoxious. Not because we're like Jesus. Or, maybe, here's another possibility. Maybe we are experiencing some opposition precisely because we're following Jesus. We are living in vital connection to Jesus in a world that is opposed to Jesus. Loved ones, you, you and I have been, quite honestly, I mean, it's, we have been set down by God in a time and a place where the opposition is not heavy. It, at least it's not as heavy or severe as some other places at this time. And, and certainly it's not institutionalized. Um, as it is in other places. But, but if we are reading John chapter 15, 16 here correctly, if we're reading this correctly, then even if it shows up on a very small scale, it seems quite clear, it seems quite clear that one cannot live very long in true, in vital, in fruit-bearing connectedness to Jesus. You just can't live distinctively, a distinctively Christian life for very long without some experience of hurt or hate or suffering or heartache or disregard or tension or being left out or hearing ridicule. Some kind, some measure 
of cost. In, um, in 1893, a young, single Irish woman by the name of Amy Carmichael uh, launched out on what would be a 53-year um, missionary career in South India. And, and listen, 53 uninterrupted years. No furlough, no home assignment. No vacation, no coming back for a break for R&R, 53 uninterrupted years. And Amy's life and ministry just wonderfully recounted in, um, you know, one of my favorites is Elizabeth Elliot's book, A Chance to Die. Some of you might be familiar with that biography. When, when word of Amy Carmichael's work in India got back to Ireland, Great Britain, oh man, just, you know, it just set a fire under young people. Lots and lots of young people, young men and women, they're just all jacked up about this and they're inspired by her sacrifice, they're driven by the romance of, of it all and the beauty and the adventure of her life. I mean, millennials would just, they would have loved it back then. And, and they flocked to India. They flocked to India. And then, encountering the discomfort and the loneliness and the pain of opposition, they would turn right around and head back home. And it was so, uh, you know, it just got to the point of such a ridiculousness that um, Amy realized that she needed to do some proactive work. And, and so she would communicate to young people back home something of the cost involved in living life on mission. And so she would frame these questions to be answered by people before they came to India. And here's just, here's just two or three of them. Do you truly desire to live a crucified life? Does the thought of hardship draw you or repel you? Can you mention any experience you've passed through as a Christian in which you were aware of your union with a suffering and crucified Lord? Amy Carmichael is also known uh, for her extraordinary poetry. Um, and she wrote a poem at this time, same time she's responding to these um, people who come to India and then turn right around and go back. She, she wrote a poem entitled, No Scar? Question mark. No Scar? So, so I'm going to read this to you. But imagine her reading... Imagine hearing this poem. You're some enthusiastic candidate for missional life and leadership. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent, by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? 
Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that followed me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? As a long time ago. But loved ones, um, following Jesus costs something. And it may at some point, in some places, cost life itself. Jesus wants us here to be fully aware of this reality. That's the burden of this text. And so he tells us. He tells us. He tells us. And and then, after he tells us, he says in John 16, verse 4, I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, let's just be absolutely clear. There is a cost. And then having said that, that there is a cost, Jesus does something else. And it's, it's, um, it's really brief. It's, it's, it's almost hidden. It's a kind of, almost like a footnote in all these things. He's laying down here. But, but it is so encouraging. And in fact, I think that this is what makes all the difference in the world, Jesus tells us that despite the opposition, the mission will go on and succeed. The mission will not fail. He makes a promise, John 15, 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. You see, loved ones, there there is something unstoppable that's happening. And the Holy Spirit is, is the one who's there to help. He is a helper. He is the one who gives strength. He gives courage. He gives boldness. He gives endurance. Provides this amazing help in times of opposition, even when it's acute opposition. He's there helping us, empowering us, sustaining us, comforting us. The Holy Spirit's the one who is propelling the mission forward. Carrying us along. Supporting. Making our witness effective and fruitful. Whether it's to our colleagues or our classmates or even to our own children in our homes. You will bear witness to me. It's a promise. So, there will be opposition. Are you ready? There will be opposition against what you stand for. Can you accept that reality? That that opposition might be directed specifically at you. You ready for that? Jesus isn't saying, you know, you're ready to run for cover. He doesn't mean, are you ready to manipulate the situation, kind of dial everything down, soften your position in order to protect yourself? No, are you ready to stand and faithfully and joyfully remain engaged in following Christ? Are you ready to remain faithfully engaged in the mission to which He has called us? Are you ready for the opposition, even hatred that might come 
this week? Are you ready for the opposition, even, even hatred that might come this next year? Are you ready for the opposition, even bitter hatred that we might be facing acutely in the next 10 years? Loved ones, Jesus spoke these words so that we might be ready for His glory. Let's pray. I'm just so mindful, Father, that um, a text like this and the weightiness to it, um, that its effect could possibly be guilt and shame and um, a burden that is not lifted and motivated and empowered by the gospel. So we really need to hear your promise here. The promise of the Spirit. The promise of a grace that's been poured out already and is even in this moment that we long for even more. A grace that's communicated to us, Lord Jesus, through your perfect life and your sin-atoning death and your resurrection, and your ascending to the Father. And again, you're pouring out your personal help to us today. Lord, as we are joined to you by faith, as we are joined to your life and your sin-atoning death, to some measure, we anticipate that we will be joined also to your suffering. We pray that you would help us to grow up into maturity and fullness of the stature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's in your name we ask these things.